Alright, back in John chapter 6, if you guys want to join us there. John chapter 6. Malachi, you got your Bible today? Okay. I have compiled the list of all of you that made the cut. I think I allotted... I'm talking, you're not. John 6. We'll see if we can get through the chapter. I doubt it. But To be fair, this is a lengthy chapter. Not every chapter of John is this long, and this is also... So those of you that made the cut, I think I allowed two absences or two not having your Bible sessions of the three and a half months we tracked it. So I'll be sending your parents a text or an email saying, hey, I want to take your students collectively to lunch as a group. I think there's 12 of you. Um, when would be... <laughs> I figured we go to Texas Roadhouse. What? <laughs> is that okay with you, Jeremy? Yeah. <laughs> James, you work with sweet frog. All right. So I'll send communication out. Hey, Robert, just because I think you might be the the anomaly of the crew that I'm sending in information to. What's the likelihood that you and Jaleel can come in on a Saturday? I know y'all live kind of out of town. Any of Hey, hey. Right. Uh, Sam, I don't remember that being part of my question to Robert. Uh, okay. All right. Okay, John chapter 6. It's been two weeks since we were together discussing this. What is it we've been discussing? What have we been walking through in John chapter 6? The chapter is really all one event, but it's a large teaching section. I heard it. What? Okay, the bread of life. Who is the bread of life? Jesus. Jesus. What's Jesus comparing himself to in this whole bread of life thing? You guys remember? What's he comparing himself? He's saying, I'm the bread of life, but he's comparing that instance to some other instance that's happened in the past. The, uh, being the bread. What? Okay, that's where we start. He starts with the feeding the 5,000, but that's not where he's pointing them to. He's pointing them to manna. What do you mean manna? Someone enlighten me on what Blake said manna. Someone else. Where do we get manna from? Iris? Okay, in Exodus and Numbers, when God provides the manna from heaven. Okay, someone else. Who does he provide it for? Israel. How long does he provide it for them? 40 years. 40 years. And it ceases the day they enter the land, okay? The promised land. So, you guys are kind of chatty this morning. Let's go ahead and curb that now. He's compared himself to one of the highlights of the Old Testament. 40 years of provision at the hand of Moses, and Jesus says, I'm better. Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. Jesus says, they ate that bread, and you know what happened the next day? They got hungry again. Now he's telling them, you eat the bread of life, which is me, and you will never hunger again. We've also saw recently in the last couple chapters, 
that we will never thirst because he's the water of life. Now, what's their problem with hearing that Jesus is the bread of life and he says things about uh, that bread that come down? What are they supposed to do with this concept? We talked about it. You guys remember? What's the struggle? Not just that it's kind of an affront to Moses, but what's the literal struggle? Yeah, how are they supposed to eat him? Like, we can't eat you. Okay? But that's not at all what we're talking about. Let's look at verse 41, and I'd like someone to read down through 51 for us. Would anyone willing to read that lengthy of a section? He's at 41. All right. Erling? Nice and loud. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is not this Jesus the son of Joseph, his father and mother of men? How does he not say, I have come down from heaven? So what Zach just read for us is everything we just discussed, giving you the setting for what we're talking about. Now, one thing I'd like to point out, someone read verse 44 for us one more time. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. All right, no one can come to me except the Father draws him. What does that mean? Someone else. What does that mean? Okay, the people who believe in Jesus are sent there, if you will, or drawn to him by the Father. So does that mean that God is the one that saves people? But did these two people choose to believe? It's absolutely predestination. It's also the concept of election. It's also the dabbles a little with irresistible grace. So this is very much those doctrines of grace concept. But what does that mean? What does that tell us about everyone who is a believer? Okay, that they're drawn by God. But yet we also know something else about every believer. Okay, they get raised up, and they're the ones that are trusting. Inside this salvation concept, we have two truths that exist, and yet they seem to confront each other. One of them says, you can't go unless he says, come here. And if you go, it's because you believed him. Interesting to consider. And then he concluded, Zach left that off with, that for the life of the world is my flesh. Well, then they're like, that's confusing. Verse 52. Someone read verse 52. Nice and loud for us. The Jews disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Alright, so we mentioned this, James. So what are they struggling with? Well, they can't eat. 
Yeah, they can't eat Jesus. That's just weird. So Jesus says to them, how does Jesus respond? Someone read uh, down through 59 for us. Someone else. Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. He eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood after eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwells in me, and I in him. As the living Father hath sent me, and liveth by the Father, so he that eateth me, even he shall live by me. This is what that the bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers did eat manna, and are dead. He that eateth of this bread shall live forever. Alright. Jeremy, will you do me a favor and read verse 54 one more time, but a little louder? Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. <clears throat> Jeremy, based upon what you just read, if you eat Jesus' flesh and you drink Jesus' blood, you could be saved, correct? Is that not what you just read? Yes. Okay. Abby, your hand went up. Why? There's probably one, there's some on the shelf back there. There's a box on a shelf above the kitchen counter. All right, Jeremy, is that accurate? You drink Jesus' blood, you eat his flesh, you get to be saved. Uh -uh, that is not what he said. So there's a difference between what he said and what he meant? Yeah. Okay. So based upon the flesh and blood equals salvation, we meant, I mentioned this to you a couple weeks back. You can see how someone, if you're going to take it only at face value and what he said and not what he meant, where, so you have to like take a bite of Jesus in order to be a believer? Like that's, that's kind of cultish, right Malachi? Okay, so how can we Christianize it but still be wrong? Not cannibalistic. How do we Christianize this and still end up with the wrong conclusion on flesh and blood? We've talked about it the last couple times. Okay, the Last Supper. What do we call that Last Supper that we celebrate? Okay. So now we've Christianized it. And we're talking about you have to partake of the Lord's Supper. Because we understand it's not Jesus' flesh and Jesus' blood. It's the bread representation and the juice representation or the wine representation. And we have to partake of that, and that gives us salvation. Correct? That's right. Does it mean every Italian restaurant provides salvation? Okay, so then what's it mean? If it doesn't mean that I have to take a bite of Jesus' arm to be saved, and it doesn't mean that I take communion or the Lord's Supper to be saved, what does it mean? So I have to believe that the bread is Jesus' body? Because if I believe that the bread is Jesus' body, then we're right there back where the Catholics would be. Isn't that 
Okay, what do you mean we're supposed to believe that that's of what it does, Blake? Okay. Someone else. Blake says that he it's not meant to be that. It's meant to be that he died for your sins, and that's what that's what provides salvation. Is he right, Nathaniel? I think it's just mirroring the faith that um, the Israelites had at the Passover. So it's the same way that like they believed that the lamb would die, and they ate it. He was saying, believe that I died. Okay. So how do you get that I died for you from the Lord's Supper bringing salvation? Because uh, he was saying that he would be uh, the bread and uh, his blood would be the wine. And that um, mirrors uh, the way that the Passover was uh, ritual. Okay. Yes. But how does that make it true for Jesus? Yes, it mirrors. He's what? the lamb. Okay. <clears throat> the inside versus the outside. Okay. Come on, someone else. How do we get from? Because you could. You need to make the argument that that's not true. Because based upon that verse that Jeremy read to us, <clears throat> partaking of the bread and the juice or the wine provides salvation. Okay, why are you connecting it to Jesus' death and resurrection? But he's not talking about himself being raised again. Go look at verse, um, what was it, 54? Whoever feeds on my flesh, whoever drinks my blood, they get eternal life, and I, being Jesus, will raise him, the one who has eaten the flesh and drank the blood, I will raise him on the last day. How do we get to the right conclusion? You're not wrong, Blake. You're not wrong, Nathaniel, that it has to get us to Jesus. But how do we get there? All right, start, start thinking through the Last Supper. So it has nothing to do with the bread. It actually has to do with the fact that his body is broken. Yes. Because it's like what I'm saying is like you can't eat somebody and they're alive. I mean, yeah. Okay. So I don't know. I think we could we could test that theory. That's a bad theory. Okay. So that's the his broken body is the bread. How is the body broken? Considering that. Not a bone of him was broken. He died Okay? The way in which his flesh is torn. Jesus, in the Last Supper, tears the bread and passes it out, saying, This is my body which is broken for you. And then he also takes it to what? What's the other part of the Lord's Supper? What's the other part of communion? Okay. The blood of the covenant that is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. So it is very much so that his flesh and blood provide salvation. But it's not you that consumes it. It is the fact that it was sacrificed for you on the cross. No. You know that because you get to look back. 
those Jews that are right here, they hear that and they think, nope, that's weird. And they're struggling with it. And so he has told them that whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. And all these things Jesus said in the synagogue, and he taught them at Capernaum. Now let's get to the last section, because this is where what's been difficult comes to light, and we see it manifest itself in the lives of these people. All right, I need someone else to read 60 through 65, someone who hasn't talked yet today. Sixty through sixty-five. Someone volunteer before I call on you. Many dirty work his disciples when they had heard this say, This is a hard saying. Who can hear it? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples murmured at it, he said unto them, Just doth this offend you. What and if ye shall see the Son of Man ascend up where he was before? It is the spirit that quickens. The flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. But there are some of you that believe not. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they, who they were that believed not, and who should betray him. And he said, Therefore I say unto you, that no man can come unto me, except it were given to him unto him unto him of my father. Alright. So what's the response to Jesus saying, You've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood by his disciples, his followers. What, Blake? He's telling them it's spiritual. Right? Okay, but what's their response? Let's work through the passage. Grumbling. Okay, they're grumbling. What are they? What's recorded for you? What is it is recorded for you that they say? Yeah, this is really difficult to understand. Who can hear this or who can listen to this? Is that because they don't want him to die, or because the concept is just really difficult? The concept's just out of this world. And so they're grumbling about it. And he asked them, does this bother you? If this bothers you, then what does he compare it to? What's the next thing they might see? His ascension. That if I go back to where I was. Because it is the Spirit that gives life. Now, what do the disciples know about the Holy Spirit? As of John chapter 6, what do they know about the Holy Spirit? What? If you were talking, I assumed it was intelligently about the Holy Spirit. Oh, I was not talking. That was dangerous. What do the disciples know about the Holy Spirit? Nothing. Yeah, really nothing. Now, what do we know about the Holy Spirit? When Jesus says, if you see the Son of Man ascending, and then he talks about the Spirit giving life, because the flesh is no help at all, What's he talking? What do we understand that to be? Yeah, he's the helper that comes because Jesus will ascend. And we look at it and we're like, well, yeah, it's not a big deal, guys. Like, Jesus ascended and then 10 days later the Holy Spirit showed up. Okay, you can't wait 10 days? But we look at it from this perspective. From their perspective, it was, wait, he's gone? They've only known Jesus to be around. If you were to go back and look at the uh, the previous verses of this chapter, 
when Jesus is saying some of these things, they're like, don't we know your parents? Like, we've known you since you were a little boy. How are you going to go ascend to be where you were before? Like, do you get the gravity with which they don't understand anything he's saying? <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, Nicodemus struggled with it. The disciples are struggling with it. It's his own followers. The men who have been walking with him day in and day out are like, I don't get this. This is really hard. Is that true today? Like, are there things in the Bible, the things you hear in a sermon, you're just like, that's really hard. I don't get that. Or even, even more realistic, <clears throat> I don't like that. But that, does that change the truth of it? Does not liking whether or not it's true change the fact that it is true? And you guys ever experienced something like that? You hear something in the Bible in a sermon you don't like, but it's still true? How many of you like being told you're wrong? Anyone? Anyone really enjoy being told you're wrong? No. We don't like that. It's offensive. And that's why Jesus is telling them, guys, you have to understand, this is really difficult, and the only way you get saved is if the Father brings you. Because of your own natural conclusions, you're not going there because it makes no sense to you. Now, we look at it, and we get to look back and say, oh, well, it's the Holy Spirit that is drawing them, you know, and, and bringing life to a dead soul. But they don't get that concept yet. What do they do then? John 6, verse 66, gives us some of the saddest words, I think, in all of the New Testament. After dealing with such a conflict, such inner turmoil, such truth that is difficult to grasp, what do they do? They walk away. Who walks away, Nathaniel? Disciples. Disciples. Now, it's one thing that the crowd that ate the food of the feeding of the 5,000 that we call it, if some of them walked away. But Malachi, we're calling these people disciples. And disciples are turning back. Now, who are these disciples that we're talking about? All right, Blake says everyone but the 12. Someone else... Read through the rest of the chapter and tell me why Blake can say it's everyone but the twelve. Let someone else do some work, Blake. How can Blake say everyone but the twelve? No, I'm ignoring this corner for a second. They're doing all the work this morning. Someone else do some heavy lifting. What, Rob? Robert, it's in the Bible. What do you mean it's in the Bible? Verse 67. What does verse 67 say? Yeah, do you want to go away as well? So how many disciples did Jesus have when we started chapter 6? More than 12. Probably... Probably a couple hundred. Because if you think about it, when we get to the upper room, he's got 120 that are there through the thick of it. If you go and you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 
and we won't for sake of time, when Jesus, is, Jesus resurrects from the grave, how many people does he appear to? Anyone know? Blake, you should know this. I'll let you answer this one if you know it. There's a couple individuals listed. He appears to Cephas and to the Twelve. But then there's a number, and above so many believers. Oh, don't go looking. 40 or something? It's not 40. And about 125. So over 500. He says he appears to over 500 brethren, or brothers in Christ, believers. So by the time we get to the resurrection, there are at least 500 disciples, if you will. Now, the 12 maintain their distinction, but nonetheless, those people are disciples. And then we see Simon Peter interjecting after Jesus says, are you leaving too? All right, someone else who hasn't spoken yet today, read verse 68 for me. And 69. We'll put the two together. It's all one statement. Come on, someone else. Go ahead, Ashley. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. All right, so what's Peter's response? What's his response? A little louder, Abby. Why would we leave you? You're the Son of God. What else does he say? Look at his look at his verbiage. How it's recorded. If I don't follow you, who am I going to follow? See, Peter has has arrived at this conclusion that it's you or nothing, Jesus. There is no other option. Now, why does he choose Jesus? What does Jesus have that Peter wants? Excellent, Robert. He has these words of eternal life. Now, what are these words of eternal life that we have just heard? What did Jesus just say in chapter 6 provides eternal life? Yeah. Now, we don't know that Peter understood all of it. That he's like, oh, yeah, well, he's referring to the fact that the sacrifice of his flesh and his blood... We have to partake in that in the sense of we have to believe in what he does on the cross. We don't know that Peter has that. But we know that Peter is fully convinced that whatever Jesus is saying is true. And Jesus says to them, verse 70. Someone read, else read this for me. Verse 70? Yep. Go ahead, Santiago. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is the devil? All right, what's the problem? Um, someone tell me what just Jesus just said, and then we'll talk about what it is. All right, Zach, what's he say? All right, that one of the 12 disciples is a devil. Is Judas literally a devil? Sorry, I didn't mean to spoil that. You guys knew that Judas was the one to betray him, right? Okay. Is Judas literally a devil? No. Okay. He's of the devil. He's of the devil. All right, any other thoughts? All right, so what truths then do we have to wrestle with? What do we now understand has to be true? Okay, not everyone who follows Jesus is a true believer. Okay, that's absolutely true. What else do we understand? What else is true? 
What are the truths that we can derive from what the statements that have been made? Not everyone who follows Jesus is a true believer. What else? There are other things that would go in line with what Tyler said. All right. Let me offer you this one. Anyone who's not of God is of the devil. Okay. Anyone who's not of God is of the devil. You mean like I can't be like just neutral and like an okay person? No. Well, huh. actually, it's a striking contrast. Go ahead, Robert. Enlighten us. But you said that was Huh? <laughs> he may. We may have to laugh. Okay. So, like, anyone who's not of God is not a believer. They don't necessarily have to be of the devil. Like, they could just then you be, be neutral. Be warm. You can't be lukewarm. Yeah, you can be lukewarm. Yeah. Yay. Hey, Robert, Robert, who's who's told not to be lukewarm? Us. Who's us? <laughs> what people? What people? Of the earth. No. There is a specific audience who's told not to be lukewarm. Okay, Christians. So then here we are. They're back of God, but they're lukewarm. So he's not telling. It's not a status of you're not a believer and you're not an unbeliever. It's a status of you're a believer who's lousy. So, is Blake right? Blake, what did you say again? <laughs> All right, Blake's statement was you were either of God or you were oh, of the yeah. devil. Yes. No neutral ground. Yes. Anyone struggle with that? No. Other than Robert? Okay, we clarified. Okay, good. Good. Now, I have. Can I? Can I ask you guys something? Someone. Um, Someone read verse 44 for me one more time. Someone else who hasn't read yet. Caden, Caden. Caden, read verse 44 for me. Nice and loud. No man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. All right. Jesus just said in verse 44, no one can come except he is drawn by the Father. Now, Let's go back and look at the verse that we just read of verse 70. Ben, you haven't read for us yet. Ben, read verse 70 one more time. Then Jesus replied, Have I not chosen you the twelve, yet one of you is a devil? All right, what's the problem with verse 44 lining up next to verse 70? Is it the Father chose versus he chose? Yeah. Okay, what's the problem with that then, Blake? What does that mean? He's equating himself with Okay, how many of you are okay with this concept that Jesus chose someone to follow him? He chose them, but they're not a believer. Because, because verse, verse 60, excuse me, verse 44 told us, no one comes unto me, no one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. But now we're reading a verse that says, I chose you, but you're a devil. Do you, do you see the dynamic that I'm, I'm trying to get you guys to think through? Yes. Judas was needed? Yes. You're going to have to explain yourself, Robert. He had to betray Jesus. That was Jesus. 
how God is kind of crucial to the whole Yeah, but are you comfortable, Robert, with saying that Judas was chosen by God to be a reprobate and be the son, labeled as the son of perdition, the son of lawlessness? Like, you're okay with God saying, I pick you to be terrible. I mean, didn't he pick the Antichrist? Mm. Megan? It means to fulfill God's purpose because yes. God, um, in order, Jesus had to pay Jesus in order to die on the cross for our sins. All right, so... We're okay with God choosing to send people to hell as long as it accomplishes God's purpose of redemption? Is that a true statement? Yes. What, Robert? Isn't it like that talks about God ransoms all certain people that we can say, like, I'm not saying it right, but I know that some who ransom. Jesus pays the ransom for many. There's some who ransom. Jesus pays the ransom for many. All right, so here's the question I have, guys. You're okay with Judas being selected to go to hell as long as it accomplishes God's plan of redemption. It was referenced up here. Uh, Naomi said it as well. God did that with a dude in the Old Testament. Who else did God choose to basically bring him up to say, I'm going to slap you down and make my power so well known that people are like, yep, look at God. Who did he do that with the Old Testament? He does it with Pharaoh. I was close. Same story. Same story. <laughs> okay, he does that with Pharaoh. Now, here's the question I have. Does God still do that? Does God still bring up people who are wicked? So that he can then destroy them to make his power known. Yes. Yeah, I would just say yeah. <clears throat> Couple yes, Megan. Hold on, guys. Shh. I think it's to like glorifying power. Okay. So as long as God is receiving the glory from it, we're okay with it. Fair. How many of you are okay with that? What happens when it's your best friend? You got to trust in God. You got you got to reevaluate your friendship choices. Okay, you have to reevaluate your friendship choices. Abby, your face went a very different direction than it was when I asked that. Why? About it being my best friend. Yeah. Because like, why? Well, Megan told us that it's to glorify himself. See, hey, students, see, this is where it gets difficult because we are working in the realm of theoretical or in biblical or redemptive history. We're like, oh, well, Pharaoh, he lived 4,000 years ago. He's dead and gone. He doesn't really matter. God glorified himself. We look at Judas. He lived 2,000 years ago. He was necessary for Jesus to become the savior of the world, and we're, we're like thumbs up on that. But now when it's your life and you're the one being affected by it, you start to rethink whether or not you're okay with it. Go ahead, Abby. I have a question, and this may sound dumb. Okay. Okay, isn't it a sin to put someone else down to rise yourself up? If for everyone but God, yes. So, like, 
how does that work? It's because it's his right. It's because it's his right? His property. He created you. He can do what he wants, you know? If it's your car, you can do what you want to. You can do what you want to somebody else's car. I talked to him, babe. Okay. Zach would disagree with you because there are things he wants to do to his truck that he, the state of North Carolina says he can't. What do you mean? I didn't wait. What was the other thing that was said? Alright. Students, our time is done. The last verse of the chapter says that he spoke of Judas, the son of Simeon, of Simon Iscariot. For he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. All right, listen. Hey, here's, here's where what we're wrestling with has to go for resolve. You have to land on this. That God's truth is the standard. And no matter how offended you may be by it, you have to go with God's truth. For chapter 6... It was, I don't understand this whole bread and flesh and blood and juice thing. I don't get it, but I know you're the one that has the words of eternal life. I know you're the Holy One of Israel. Where else am I going to go? You're not going to struggle with that concept. Here's where you're going to struggle. Why can't I love this person? Why can't I be in this relationship? Why can't I do X, Y, or Z? Why can't I think X, Y, or Z? Why does this person always tell me I'm wrong? If you don't land on, I don't understand it all, but I know who has the words of eternal life, I know who the Holy One is, and I'm going to stick with Him because there's nowhere else for me to go. If you don't have that resolved, then when you start struggling with, that's really difficult to hear, Jesus. You're going to turn and walk away. Don't be one of those disciples. Be the Peter that says, I got no idea where I would go if I weren't here. That's who we should be. Father, thank you for the time this morning. Thank you for John 6 and the truth that we find in it. It's in your name we pray. Amen.